I'll invite your attention this evening to Titus chapter 2, starting with verse 11. If you received one of these when you came in, hold that for just a moment and we will make reference to it. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. This is a letter from God through Paul to this preacher, Titus, who was located in Crete. Based on the letter, there was much work to do in Crete, appointing elders, teaching sound doctrine, issuing needed reminders to the brethren, avoiding foolish controversy, and then Titus was to make an effort to visit Paul at Nicopolis. Listen, please, to this part of the letter in Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may recall a few weeks ago, I used this as a suggestion for a Bible study method. Five truth perspectives. And I provided some additional copies tonight. You look for the truth first in the context to discover the main idea. Then you see if there is truth about God in the passage. Next, truth about man, and then truth about yourself, and then specific truth that you need to obey. It is one way to organize your study of a Bible passage. Certainly not the only way, but it's one way I have found valuable. I did that with you from the pulpit here in Romans 1 a few weeks ago, and then I did it again in James chapter 1. And you've probably already figured I'm going to do that with you tonight with Titus 2, 11 through 15. With all that in mind, I want to read the passage again. Be listening for these five truth perspectives as we listen again to what God had Paul write to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Let's go through our process. What is the context? What is the main idea when you read the paragraph? I would state the context or frame the main idea with a sentence. Now, you can't do this with every passage in the Bible, but I think you can do it with this one. Titus 2, 11 through 15, in one sentence to attempt to capture the main idea. God's grace appeared not only to save us, but to train us to live right. And that can be done because Jesus gave himself for us. Now, that's a capsule statement of this passage. And really, it's also a capsule statement of the gospel. The rest of the New Testament before and after this text provides the details. But this is about God's grace that appeared not only to save us, but to train us to live right. And that training can be received and applied by us because Jesus gave himself for us. So we have our main idea. Paul wants Titus to teach this. This is sound doctrine. It is for evangelism and for edification. This needed to be announced, declared, and repeated over and over. God's grace appeared not only to save us, but to teach us to live right. And that can be done because Jesus gave himself for us. So there you have context, and framed in that is the main idea. Let's move ahead to the next step. What truth about God is contained in this passage? <clears throat> That's very easy to see. The first truth about God you notice is captured by a phrase that pertains to God. The grace of God. It says the grace of God has appeared to save us and then after saving us to train us to live right because Jesus died for us. But fundamental to this is the grace of God. It may occur to you that all through the Bible the grace of God appeared. All through the Bible the grace of God is on display. Old Testament times, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, it can be said about the Old Testament stories. Everybody who was ever blessed, everybody who was ever favored by God, yet had sinned, and that covers all of them, knew God to be gracious, merciful, and powerful. So the grace of God appeared in Old Testament times, in the patriarchal age, the Mosaic age. But when you get into the New Testament and learn about who Jesus is and what he said and what he did, 
his death, burial, and resurrection, the grace of God appears in full display, in its fullness. And in fact, John said that in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 and verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has always been a God of grace. The full expression, the supreme expression of His grace came with Jesus Christ, who will take His people to the most gracious place ever in heaven with the Father. And references made to that in our text. Now, the grace of God includes this truth. Man does not deserve such benevolent consideration. And that means God didn't look down on the earth and see great people who needed to be rewarded. He saw sheep without a shepherd. He saw ungodliness, worldly passion. He saw an absence of self-control, every man doing what was right in his own eyes, even the best of men and women not consistently thinking and speaking and saying that which is upright, not worthy of God's redeeming love. But the New Testament says, again I refer to the Gospel of John, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for sinners. He gave. That's generosity. And that's grace not deserved by the recipients of it. Grace, we sometimes call it unmerited favor. And without that, we would have no hope because we've sinned. So our passage, Titus 2, 11 through 15, our passage is about God's grace appearing not only to save us, but with the power to train us to live right. And that's possible because Jesus gave himself for us. And in the giving of Jesus' life, there is behind that a God of grace. Number three, what does Titus 2, 11 through 15 tell us about man? What is said here? What is implied here about the human race? The need for salvation. God's grace brought salvation to all men. Salvation from sin. One way to look at that in this passage is to lock into that word renounce. Some translations will have the word denying instead of renounce. The idea is to turn away from, to give it up, to walk away from the specified behaviors. Now tie that in with what we said about salvation. God saw in the human race these things. Ungodliness. That means living without God. Living opposite His high standards. Worldly passions are lust. 
That means to be driven by appetite, doing what feels good, unrestrained by any consideration of the Creator, are the assigned consequences. Believing you have a right to fulfill any and every desire that might occur to you. So without God, and therefore doing as you please, unrestrained by the assigned consequences. That's what God saw. And because of His grace, His desire was to offer redemption to those who were living ungodly, opposite His standards. God wanted to do something so that ungodly people could become godly people. It would mean not only the appearance of His grace to save us from sin, to offer redemption that we can receive upon obedience to the gospel, but then to train men and women to live opposite what they came from, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So, the context shows the main idea. This is what Titus was to teach. This is sound doctrine about God's response to sinners on earth. It speaks to His grace. It tells us of the condition of man without that grace, without being a recipient of it. You see how easy this is to navigate into a passage and to come out with good clarity. What truth about me can be found in this passage? Oh, now we're getting very personal. And the responses to number four are going to vary person to person. Because this is a personal question. Never engage in Bible reading and Bible study without making it personal. Yes, there are historical narratives that supply information. But all that information eventually comes to application, especially in New Testament instructional passages. So never read and study the Bible just for general knowledge or information. The goal is to always make it personal. What truth about me am I learning in the process of Bible reading and Bible study? It's a very personal question to be answered by each individual. You must answer it for you. I must answer it for me. It will vary from individual to individual. Someone may look at this and conclude that they need a greater, deeper, richer appreciation for the grace of God. Someone else may look into this text and discover that they have not properly and thoroughly responded to the training God's grace provides. What is required of every reader and every student and every listener to a sermon from a passage like this is self-inquiry, honest self-examination. You must do it for you. I must do it for me. And it seems to be there are two primary options at, as it pertains to self-examination here. I'm living in the grace of God. 
I am part of those people for his own possession. I'm zealous of good works. And therefore, I'm waiting for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Or, I don't have sufficient appreciation for the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ. I'm not living as completely as I should in the grace of God. If I'm living in the grace of God, that manner of life expresses itself in these specific ways. In my mind and my life, I renounce, I deny ungodliness. In my mind and in my life, I reject worldly passions. And on the positive side, I live self-controlled. I am upright and godly in this present age. I'm devoted to personal purity. I'm zealous for good works. If this doesn't describe me, then right in the middle of this verse, this passage, it says something that I don't have. I don't have the blessed hope God promises at the final appearing of the Savior. So my reading of and my study of this passage either describes me as one living in the grace of God or not so behaving. And for all of us, a richer and deeper appreciation of the grace of God will be valuable and necessary. Whatever else I might find interesting and noteworthy in the process of my reading and study, I'm either living as described or not living as described. If I am, this is motivation to stay there in the grace of God and continue to be so trained. If I'm not, I need to either obey the gospel initially or if I have fallen out of the grace of God, I need to seek His gracious forgiveness and get back where I need to be. And that brings me to number five in the process of study. What truth is written here for me to obey? I want to highlight two things as truth to obey from our passage. There is here truth to obey for the preacher the one charged to deliver this message, and that's in verse 15. To the preacher, to Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus was charged not to hesitate or be silent. Declare these things. The man up here is responsible to God to declare nothing but what God has committed to writing for us. I have opinions. I cannot stand up here and declare or enforce. I have personal preferences. I don't need to announce to anyone. When I'm up here, or any man up here, the charge is declare these things that constitutes sound doctrine. Nothing can be bound or required or imposed on anyone in any audience unless it is bound, required, and imposed by God. 
Titus and every preacher was and is to stay within the instruction that the God of all grace has provided. So there's truth for me to obey right here. Declare these things. Second example. Truth to obey for every one of us. Zealous for good works. All of us do things, I think, that we have to do that are accompanied by no zeal or passion. I mean in ordinary life, all of us do things that are accompanied by no zeal or passion. We take out the garbage. I certainly don't have the same attitude about taking out the garbage as I do a lot of other duties that I have. We deal with appliances and cars that break down. I recently had one to just die. On and on, we have to do things here on the earthly plane out of duty or necessity, but we really have no passion for it. We don't get excited. There's not a zeal for it. It isn't a burning desire of heart. It's a burden. It's a necessity, but it's a necessity of life here on earth. I cannot be like that when it comes to anything the Lord has told me to do. That's a part of his work, collectively or individually. If God is going to save us sinners by grace, we ought to be happy to receive that grace and live in it and embrace every duty he has assigned in a zealous way. Zealous of good works. What is this about for me and for you today. We have in our modern jargon this word passion. If someone has a passion for something, they love it. They want to do it. And they do it even if it's hard. And you're often able to see what it is that they love in the passion that accompanies their engagement. What's most important is what God is able to see. And he can see us thoroughly from the inside out. Our zeal is not for the purpose of people grading us from one to ten. Zeal drives us internally and supplies energy that may or may not be seen by others. But most important it should always be known and seen by God. We should know when we do the Lord's work, when we do the good works He has assigned to us, if there is any identifiable zeal inside. The zeal is not for others to admire, but inside you know if you have it or not. And God has perfect knowledge of us from the inside out. So, do you love to worship God? Are you enthused about singing, giving, listening? Do you love to read your Bible and study your Bible? Do you have a passion about this sort of thing we're doing tonight? 
And then do you love to do what you've read? Are we passionate about sharing the gospel, about helping brethren, about making the local church a part of our lives? For most Christians, Titus 2, 11 through 15 takes us to this vital target point of self-examination. Am I zealous for good works? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Bible reading and study ought to be at the very center of our lives as Christians. And it is not the work of scholars to tell you what Scripture means. Preachers have a place in the Lord's work, but most of the learning you will do will be learning that you initiate. These simple steps, I hope, can help. This isn't the only formula for navigating a text. What does context tell you about the main idea? What does the passage say about God, about man, about you and me? And then about our obedience. In this case, are we zealous for good works? Let's be standing while we sing.